Praise God. When Jeanette was a child in school, she was about eight or nine, the teacher came in one day and the teacher said, everybody sit down, quiet, close the door. Some money has been stolen. And the person in this room has stolen it. So nobody's leaving until we find out who it is. And the teacher started to walk up and down the aisles in the classroom and began to look each girl in the eye and say, did you steal it? Or maybe it was you. And Jeanette began to turn bright red. And she began to feel very, very, very guilty. She began to look very, very guilty. And all the emotions, and in some ways all the appearances of real guilt, were on her, with her, in her, because that's just the way she is. It's a funny thing, the conscience. It can play tricks on you. Your conscience can actually make you feel very guilty for stuff you haven't done. And you've got to know how to handle it right through your life. And maybe nobody ever tells you that. That's the problem. You can live your whole life long carrying guilt, carrying weight upon you that God never designed you to have. Right? I, I believe that many Christians are slaves to a broken conscience. Right? We live under that strict, harsh rulership and we need to learn how to deal with it. If that's the case, if you don't know how to handle your conscience, when to silence it and when to agree with it, the trouble for you is this. You're never going to enter into the joy of salvation. You're never going to know the liberty of forgiveness that God has intended for you. The conscience is a funny thing. I mean, to begin with, God didn't want you to have one. Adam didn't have one. So there's Adam, he's in the Garden of Eden. He didn't have one. Eve didn't have one. A conscience is the knowledge of good and evil. Now, there was a tree in the Garden of Eden which had upon it the knowledge of good and evil, but it wasn't in Adam. And it was the one thing that God said, I don't want that in you because that's going to ruin you altogether. Adam was truly innocent. What innocent means is you don't have any knowledge of good or evil. Simple as that. So God saw Adam, saw Eve, and he loved their innocence. It was beautiful. And so he says to them, I want you to stay just like that child. So don't touch that tree, whatever you do. Now, any parent understands that. Because that's what you say to your children. You don't want your children either to come to a knowledge of evil. When your child gets to 14, 15, 16, and they say to you, I'm going into town, I'm going to a nightclub or something, you go, <gasps> and your automatic loving reaction and response is to protect your child from evil. I don't want you to know about those things. I know what goes on down there. And so you try to tell them not to go, and it's just like God in the garden. You try to protect them from the knowledge of evil. But of course, mankind didn't obey God. We know the story all too well. Adam took the fruit just like Eve. And now we've got a problem. So now God had the child he loved, but oh, now he has a knowledge within him. Now he has a conscience within him, the knowledge of good and evil. But the trouble for Adam 
And the same trouble for you is that Adam didn't have the moral character to cope with that knowledge. Adam couldn't deal with it. You see, your conscience is not God. The Holy Ghost, that's God. But your conscience is not God. It's part of a fallen humanity. Yes, it's the imprint or the fingerprint of God, but it's not God Almighty. That's the Holy Ghost in you. Your conscience is actually part of the fallen nature. You see, lost and saved have a conscience. Right? Lost and saved. And the lost are without God. And they have a conscience. So we've got to be very careful how we handle this, how we deal with it. It does immense damage, I believe, in Christian lives, particularly when it pertains to joy. Amen? Just like Tom was saying. And I want to take you through a little tour here. If I can get, could you put that first one up for me? I want to take you through a little tour here. So take, think back to the Garden of Eden. The conscience comes into the human race, but it wasn't what God wanted. So now you've got this damaged human being with a knowledge of right and wrong, but he or she can't cope with it. So God looks and he thinks, what will I do? How am I going to deal with you now? How can I help you, my child? So what he does is he sends what we call the moral law. And he begins to teach and educate this conscience about right and wrong. Okay? And then as you proceed through your Old Testament, you will see that that didn't work very well. So God says, okay, I'll write my law on your heart. I will put it within you. And things get better then again because Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, we have a living example, a walking, talking example of what someone who lives in good conscience should look like and be like. So all these things help us. But the great help to live within our conscience is the Holy Ghost. When the Holy Spirit was actually sent, this is a, a much more sure guide for us because the, you know, the Holy Ghost is within us and is perfect, whereas your conscience is not. Now, having said that, the Holy Spirit is not the final rule within us. Not whilst we're on this earth, I'm afraid. In fact, the final rule within our conscience and how we live, it's not Jesus whilst we're on earth. It's not the voice of Jesus. It's not the voice of the Holy Spirit. It's not prophecy. The final rule whilst we live on this earth is this right here. It's the Word of God. And God, say, God puts it like this. He says, I have exalted my word above my name. I have exalted my word above my name. And you can read all about it. Peter tells us about it. He says, look, it's a, it's a funny old world we live in. And what happens if you try to grope around in the dark and feel and listen to God? And you think you hear Jesus speak to you? Or you think you hear the Holy Ghost speak to you? That could be a little bit dangerous. What if it's a false prophecy, Peter says. So God has given us what Peter calls a more sure word, which is the written word. Once again, he's a good father. And he's saying to you, you know what? You might get confused. One day you might think you hear something and it won't be me. So I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll write it down. I'll write it down. And whilst you're on earth, this book, the Holy Scriptures, will be the final rule for all faith and doctrine, and I would say to you, a guideline for your life. So you see, the conscience is there, but we have advanced way past that, and we need to take full use of these things that God has given to us as believers in the world. 
if you were going to London or something, right, and you were out there and you got on a coach and the driver got up and said, right, we're just ready to go. And he got out a compass and he started to look which way south, you know. <laughs> You'd get a little bit worried maybe. You would much rather he had a GPS, correct? Well, the conscience is a bit like a compass. It may give you, it may be faulty, but it may give you some general directions. But the Word of God is really like a GPS. It gives you the whole instructions all the way through. This is a difficult topic. It's a, and as I say, I think it does awful damage. It can be a very strict, hard life, living under your conscience. It can be a very hard dictatorship, and it can be something that God never intended, you know, for you. And you've got to be very careful how you handle that. On the other extreme, some people's consciences are so seared, so damaged, that, you know, they let themselves off with anything. Let me just show you a, a list of things where you can do a bit of a self-assessment on how you're currently coping with your own conscience, how you're coping with any guilt that, that your conscience may try to bring to you and how you process that. You can tell that someone is struggling with dealing with guilt in their lives, number one, when they have an inability to enjoy their relationship with God. You see, we're fallen human nature just turns automatically to religion and to works as soon as anything goes wrong. It's just an instinct within us. And an inability to enjoy that freedom in God, you can see it in believers who struggle with coping with guilt or struggle with silencing their conscience when they need to. Their lives become all about rules, all about disciplines and laws and do's and don'ts. And that can be a very harsh reality because it's not based on relationship. Of course there's disciplines in our lives, but the goal of them is relationship. The goal is, is God, not the discipline. The discipline is a route to God, and it's all about God. Amen? So those who struggle, often you will see in them add a, 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 a problem with enjoying their relationship with God, not enough joy in their lives. Secondly, you can also see someone who struggles with guilt by their exemplary behavior. Let me qualify that. Am I saying we shouldn't have exemplary behavior? Of course not. We should live exemplary lives. But every now and again, you come across a believer, and what they present to you, <laughs> you just know it's fake. You just know that the person they are presenting to you is not the real them. It's too good to be true. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's too good to be true. And you can tell that the person is struggling within themselves and they want so much to be that example. But something inside you says, do you know what? I just find it a struggle to believe that you're that good. Such a person is struggling with dealing with guilt within themselves often and don't know how to cope with it. You can spot it with binging. I don't mean alcohol. I mean sin binging. You see, if you can't get guilt out of your system, sin is going to grow up within you. It's a technique, a tactic of the devil. We must clear all guilt. All guilt, all condemnation must be removed from our system, right? Through communion, through relying on the blood of Jesus. And when we do that, we can walk tall and walk on. But listen to me. If guilt remains within you, it will eventually wear you down. It will wear you out. 
it will eat and eat and eat away at your conscience and it'll grow and grow until you say, oh, what's the point? I'm a sinner anyway. I may as well A, B, C, D, E. So we need to learn how to purge our conscience, as Hebrews says, through the blood of Jesus Christ. You can, and you can see that. So when you see people who are caught in addictions or, or caught in any sin, if the sin repeats itself, right? So, you know, six months clean and then they repeat their sin. It's guilt-orientated. It's because they're not getting cleaned out properly in the first place, right? So binging is a sign. Self-punishment is a sign when Christians, you know, deprive themselves or whatever to try and make up for some wrong within themselves that they perceive. And of course, that's a bad track to take in life. And then they expect disapproval. People who can't cope with their own guilt, who can't process their own guilt, you can never encourage them. You might try. You can pour love and approval from morning to night. You're wasting your time because they just don't get it. They can't receive it, right? Many, 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 many people like this. So what we're going to do today is I want you to think about yourself a moment. Think about your life. Think about your upbringing. And think about the things that have made you the person that you currently are. The Bible is a wonderful guide on the conscience, absolutely wonderful. And it gives us many um, examples of types of conscience or, if you like, types of people. And in this room, we're all different, but it's Paul particularly splits it up into categories. There's this sort of person and that sort of person. And he takes us on a little tour of different types of conscience. The first one is a weak conscience. Turn to 1 Corinthians a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, see? Since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better if we do. <laughs> Remember a few weeks ago we were talking about alcohol? We're no worse off if you do and you're no better if you don't. But the weak conscience has a problem with that, you see, and the problem is not with the Word of God. The problem is with the upbringing of the people, their religious background. They struggle with it and we fail to see the liberty that, is, that, that God gives us. And we live under rules and laws that people put on you, not God. Not God. And that really concerns me. The weak conscience is the first one we could look at. And I'll just split it into three different types. I used to think Jeanette had a weak conscience until I met Heidi. Where's Heidi? Give us a wave. She gets the gold medal for weak consciences. We look upon people with weak conscience, and as Christian societies, we admire that. What I mean is, say there was somebody shot dead in Glasgow last night, and I said, Heidi, did you do that? She said, yes, it was me. Yes, I did it. Lock me up. Throw away the key. You see? A weak conscience is, is extremely susceptible to any accusation. Extremely susceptible. Can't maybe deal too well with knowing what I'm going to reject and what I'm going to accept. 
So when any accusation comes, you just you, you tend to receive it, and that can destroy you. By the way, it's not God. It's not God. You see? That's not the result of, of God. That's the result of parenting. That's what that is. It's a completely different thing. That's not the sort of, of work that God does on our conscience. Gordon here, a few, six months ago or something, I said to Gordon, it's Sunday morning, I said, Gordon, I need to talk to you. Would you come to my house on your own? Maybe Wednesday, 7 o'clock, okay? Fine. A few days go by, Wednesday come, Gordon turns up at my place, he looks like he's going to a funeral. <laughs> he walks in with his head down, sits at the table, I looked at him and I thought, oh, I see. He thinks I've called him to tell him off. And... I sat him down, and I, I said, Gordon, I, I asked you to come because I wanted to say something to you face to face, and it was thank you. I wanted to say thank you because all day, every day, you serve this church, and I am very, very grateful to you. And the second thing I want to say was I wanted you to do communion. Would you do that? And I wanted to give him some guidelines for doing that. Now listen, when I said to him, I need to talk to you, do you think he said, oh, pastor's going to must be going to be saying thank you to me? No. The first reaction was, what have I done wrong? Is it this? Is it that? He couldn't figure it out. You see? And it's, it, no, it's not just Gordon. It's me as well. And I would hesitate, is it you too? I was lying in bed and a text message comes through. And it says, just plain and simply, Pastor Rick Seward's coming tomorrow to see you. Boom. He's our senior pastor. And instantly, do you know, I'm just telling you the truth. I instantly thought, what have I done wrong? <laughs> and I lay in bed with my eyes wide open, looking at the ceiling, thinking through everything. On, for about an hour, I processed it and I thought, well, I haven't done anything. What am I thinking about? <laughs> you see, conscience is a funny thing. And it can play tricks on you. And no, we can laugh because it's funny, but it isn't funny all the time. It's not funny to walk around with that sort of weight or condemnation on you for things you haven't even done, right? But I'm, I'm sure the devil must have it very easy to manipulate this part of you and of me. And we need to be much smarter in the way that we deal with it. You see, what is a weak conscience? A weak conscience is one that finds trouble in differentiating between what it should accept and what it should reject. Simple as that. So we're the product of our parents, you see. And if, they, if we had over strict parents and they kept us within strict guidelines and all the rest of it, you know, that sort of thing, it will produce a weak conscience. It will produce someone who cannot cope with false accusations. They will take every accusation to heart. And Jesus hated this. He absolutely hated it. Jesus preached in two different ways. I don't know if you ever noticed that. When he preached to the Pharisees and the legalists, you can read the scriptures. By the way, he's not talking to you. And this is not the preaching style to you. He condemns them. He slams them. Because they were putting weights on people who were already guilty from a conscience. Are you with me? So there's two styles of preaching. One was to legalistic Jews. There was a gate called the eye of the needle through which a camel was not allowed to pass. And the camels would come up and they would take these huge bundles of stuff and put them on people. 
and they the man would walk up hardly able to stagger through the eye of the needle and Jesus saw that one day and he shouted over to them come to me all of you who are heavy laden and I will give you rest for your souls you see guilt and condemnation will come through your parents and if you've got an over overly correct parents you know it can affect you then for the rest of your life and you need to learn how to come onto the liberty that is in Christ okay but it can also come through preaching through the wrong sort of preaching to the legalists Jesus slammed them and condemned them outright no question but just please realize he's not talking to you at that point then he turns to the lost and he opens his arms and he says come to me all of you who are burdened with guilt they're adding to your guilt I want to take it off you I want to remove those weights those bundles those loads I am a good good God but we're preconditioned because of this broken conscience we're preconditioned to internalize all this guilt that can be poured upon us and that's not the Christian life it stifles the freedom and the joy and the liberty that Christ has brought for us and it's the same thing today you know Jesus would be preaching the same way today get that guilt off you I died to do that for you so receive it first thing then the weak conscience you think of your parents maybe they weren't over strict if that's the case then you fall in category two but if your parents were over strict they can produce in you what the Bible calls a weak conscience a conscience that can't differentiate between conviction of God and what it should obey and just receiving every single thing that comes your way and is dumped on you we need to be able to cope with that and deal with that the second type of conscience here is a seared conscience look at 1 Timothy 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 2 and 3 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 2 and 3 such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron talks about a damaged conscience now goodness knows friends unfortunately we don't have to too, look too far to see a damaged conscience you can see it everywhere people whose conscience just doesn't seem to function I hate animal cruelty I hate bullfighting particularly and for many years I've tried to find a Christian society that would work just solely on that but there aren't Christians there's many societies but they're not Christian societies they are a multitude of things so they tend to be all new age groups and stuff so instead of joining them because I can't contribute financially to something that isn't Christian so instead I pray and I follow through the progress through Europe I don't know if you're aware but there's a bill currently to disestablish that within Europe which is doing very well one of the provinces of, in Spain Catalonia has already been abolished there but I hate animal cruelty I absolutely hate it now if you look at a look at a bullfight where there's a thousand people sitting in a bullring watching an animal being tortured to death and you walk up to one of those people and you say <coughs> excuse me do you see anything wrong in this no <laughs> no well do you know why you see nothing wrong with it probably because of your parents probably because they took you as a child and they sat you there and said watch this and as a young child your conscience was seared and now you're completely unfeeling towards that thing but it's not God just because you don't feel it's wrong doesn't mean it's right you know what I mean 
Your conscience is no measure in these ways. It's a very dangerous thing. Ask God how he feels about that. Read the book of Jonah. And you can look at other things. I remember sitting in a pastor's meeting once and there's only three of us there and two of them were my seniors at the time in the church we were in. We had a champion boxer in our church and I had advised this champion boxer to give up boxing. I said it wasn't good, not from God, that a Christian should box. And it came up in the meeting and uh, the other two pastors disagreed with me and laughed at me actually. What do you mean? There's Christian boxers all over the world. It's great for evangelism. There's all these big events in America. Don't you know? I said, oh, I know all right. I know several actually. Coincidentally, we've met a few Christian boxers in our time, particularly in Liverpool. But I still don't agree with them. And they're friends of mine. It doesn't make it right. And they just couldn't cope with that. So I began to tell them a little bit about Christian bo or about boxing. <laughs> <laughs> you see, boxing's not like one of these guys was a rugby player. So as he was raised, he played rugby all his life, rough and tumble, right? And he said, boxing's just like rugby. I said, no, it's not. In rugby, the rules are that if you hurt your opponent, you're going to be sent off. So is football. In fact, even the martial arts are like that. That if you do too much damage or you hurt, you'll be sent off deliberately, right? There's rules. Boxing is quite unique because the rules state that you're supposed to hurt the opponent. The average, statistical average is 250 blows to the head per boxing match. Now, please, don't tell me as a Christian, and this is where I can really get angry. It's because one of these pastors was praying for the guy as he was fighting to, you know, to knock the other guy out. I think, God, help us. <laughs> Do you know your brain, your brain is, is suspended in water, you know? It's in spinal fluid. It's not actually attached. It's just, if you're taking notes, actually, Peter, just write down my brain is not attached inside my head. <laughs> your brain... Your brain floats inside your head. So the goal of boxing is to pummel the head until you cause like a concussion and you knock the guy out. Now you've got to have lost your brain if as a believer you're praying for something like that. You have really lost it. What's the root? Trace, trace back the root. You grow up in a rugby playing family. It's nothing to do with God, remember? You grow up in a, in a rugby playing family where it's all rough and tumble and your conscience gets a little bit weary over those years and then you come to something like boxing and you don't have the ability to discern right from wrong. Your conscience has been seared by your upbringing. Now one of those pastors came back to me about two or three weeks later and he said, I've been thinking about what you said and you know, I think you're right and I think we've missed it. What was he doing? He was educating his conscience. He was looking at something that he had always accepted as right and suddenly he realized, my conscience is telling me the wrong thing, isn't it? Exactly. Your conscience is wrong on that issue and you need to educate it with the Word of God. There's no way you could accept boxing with the Bible, please. To go in, I, 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 the, actually the champion boxer was a close friend of mine and he was praying literally that the Holy Spirit would come upon him. This is dangerous praying. The Holy Spirit would come upon him and enable to knock the guy out in the first round. I thought, God help me, I would not want... It's called tempting Christ and it's not a joke. That's what it's called. It's a very serious sin. You're asking God to do something that is outside of his moral character. And when you get into that realm, you're in trouble, friend. So you see how dangerous these things are? You can have a weak conscience. You can have a seared conscience and you need to go back and educate your conscience through the Word of God. And lastly, you can have a mature conscience. 
in the book of Acts particularly, Paul talks about this. Acts 24, Hebrews 13, 1 Peter. They all talk about a clear conscience. Just be a little careful with the way you handle that. Would you turn to 1 Corinthians 4? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. This is a great scripture. 1 Corinthians 4, 4. Look at what it says. 1 Corinthians 4, 4. Paul talking, and he says, My conscience is clear, but that doesn't mean I'm innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. Paul knows that he actually can't trust his conscience. My conscience is clear. My conscience does not... Con do you know that Paul killed the Christians? Right? And do you know what he says in Acts? I did that in good conscience. That's what he says. I murdered believers in all good conscience. I was doing what I thought was right. Right? It's a funny thing, the conscience, isn't it? Imagine it allowing someone to do that. Now, let me be very clear. Do I listen to my conscience? Yes. Do I obey it? Absolutely, when it lines up with this. My conscience is not the final rule the Word of God is. And if in any way, shape or form, there's a gray I need to hold on and get this, get the Word of God into me and educate and seek out the Scriptures for these things at all times. Your conscience can do dreadful, 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 dreadful things. I fear for people with a seared conscience particularly. I had a friend, he used to come and see me. And he was a Scottish guy actually. And he was living with his girlfriend and sleeping with her. So he would come round and he would sit there and he would tell me. And I would say, you know, that's, uh, you have to stop that. <laughs> you have to stop that right now. And he would simply say, I feel fine. My conscience doesn't condemn me. I, I'm okay. That's your problem. God will, you know, deal with you your way and me my way. I would say, no. He said, no, you're wrong, Michael. My conscience does not condemn me. Finish the line. But that does not mean it's right. You see, that guy was living with and sleeping with his girlfriend. And he says, but I'm born again. He used to laugh at me. You don't realize I'm saved. And I would say, my dear friend, in the book of Revelation, it says this. All fornicators, adulterers, liars, sorcerers will have their place in the lake of fire. Now, tell me, you say you're born again. Is God going to send a lost person to hell for fornication and let a saint go to heaven with the same sin? He would be an unjust God, wouldn't he? Very unfair. So I think you need to reconsider your perception of God here. All fornicators, all liars, will have their place in the lake of fire. So what's the difference with you then? You say you're born again. The difference with you is you have a knowledge and you can repent and forsake your sin and go back to God. That's the difference with you who are saved. But in 1 John, it is extremely clear that those who continue in sin will not, you, you will not see God, friends. I know that's contrary to a lot of what you hear today. I'm well aware of that. But believe me, sin will get you. And I wouldn't lean on my conscience in these issues. Stick with the Bible. It will give you a very, very clear guideline. Somebody once put it like this. They said, having a conscience is like having a watch. 
It's a great tool, provided it works right. But if it's telling me the wrong time, then I'm, you know, everything is going to go wrong in my life. It's quite an unusual week this week. Normally when I do a series, I get a word from God, right? And I got one for this, no pro this whole series, but I seldom get interrupted along the way. In other words, I'll get discipleship and then for five months, I will just work out of that one word at home, away I go. But this is a little unusual because this week God spoke to me, interjected into the series about your conscience. And I can see Tom didn't realize that was one of my scriptures. Come to me, all of you, so heavy laden and burdened with sin, sin that I didn't put on you. Remember your mom? Remember your dad and how strict they were with you? That wasn't me. That's your upbringing. Get your Bible and start to read about the liberty and the freedom that I want in you. Don't be a slave to a broken conscience, but be liberated. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let God guide you as you read the Scriptures and free you. Look at 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3. It talks about a heart that condemns us. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 19. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we have set, just like we set our watches, right? And how we have set our hearts at rest in His presence whether our hearts, uh, whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. I don't know if you understand what's being said there. I'll read it again, verse 19. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. What that's saying, friends, is this. We've all got a conscience. Every person in the room has got a conscience and it's faulty. Not all of the time, but a lot of the time. And it will condemn you in your own heart so that when you go to worship or you go to praise God, there'll be that, as we said at the beginning, there'll be that break off between you and Him because you feel guilty. A guilty person can't worship. And so we need to, to learn to deal with it. And God right there is saying, no matter what your heart may be telling you, I am greater. I am greater than your heart. Read the Word, listen to the Word, believe what I say to you, even though your conscience may be dragging you down, I'm God. Greater than your heart, greater than your own self-judgment. Okay, what did Paul say? God will judge me. God will judge me. So be liberated this morning on this issue. We're going to have communion. Actually, if we could go ahead and distribute that. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about the blood of Jesus and how it takes away our sins. And I want you to think about yourself this morning, maybe about any issue that's dogged your life or beset you, and let the blood of Jesus do its work in you. Praise God. Just begin to think over your life. Begin to think maybe of your childhood years and of the things that shaped you for good or for bad. Lord, we pray for ourselves in this place. 
and we come to you and we lay down our burdens, whatever they may be. We don't want to go through life judging ourselves wrongly or weighed down with burdens that you didn't intend in any way, shape, or form. Would you give us the wisdom and the discernment today to take off all the hindrances that would weigh us down and to be freed into the liberty of forgiveness that is in God. Father, I thank you for all of our parents, for all, whether they were good or bad, we thank you for them. But we also become, Lord, very aware that things may stretch from our childhood all the way to this very day. Show us, Jesus. Show us and help us to take these things away. Praise you, Lord. Hallelujah. Praise you, God.